across generations, that the kids down the hallway are learning God's word this morning, and they're singing, and they're jumping around, and they're enjoying being together with the family of God, and that our students are meeting together on Monday nights over at Kenny's house, and they're presenting the gospel at their local school. Isn't it wonderful to be a part of Hebron? It is. It is. What a great place, and uh, it's just great to know and see how the Lord's working in our midst. Uh, We have been in a series traveling through uh, since uh, early summer, looking at the life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter. We're wrapping that up, not today, but next week. So next week will be our last um, in this whole series of looking at the life of Peter. Today, uh, I'm going to try to wrap up what I've been leading toward over the last uh, four weeks, uh, believe it or not. Um, and I, hopefully I'll give you a little bit of summary of some of what we've uh, talked about so far in case you missed one of those weeks and then bring everybody up to speed. So let me just do a little bit of that. Uh, I've got a timeline for you here, and this shows the two ages of human history. So if you think about human history, this is how the Bible sees human history, that it had a clear beginning and that it will have a clear ending. And there are these two ages that the Bible sees in human history. The first of those is the age of the law or the age of the Old Testament age, the age of the Mosaic law. And this is where the Jewish people were, had the laws that Moses had given them. They were following those laws. This led up to and came to an end, some scholars would say, at the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus, now having completed his public ministry, now having resurrected from the dead, ascends on up to the Father. Other people like myself uh, believe that this actually came to an end in 70 AD when the Roman uh, soldiers led by General Titus, uh, headed down toward Jerusalem and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, surrounded the city, and the city fell, and they destroyed the temple. That is, they destroyed the place where the Jewish people would physically make sacrifices for sin and make their, their offerings of praise. And so that's gone. That temple's gone. Even today, it's still gone. Today, what sits on that site is a Muslim holy site. And so the Jewish people for 2,000 years have not been able to make any sort of sacrifices. So that brought, in my opinion, the end of that first age. Uh, to bear. And then the second age you see there is the age of the Spirit, or the church age. That's the age that we live in now. And this is where the Holy Spirit no longer dwells, or God no longer dwells in the tabernacle, or in the temple, or in the person of Jesus Christ among us, but now the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And that age is coming to an end as well, at what we would refer to as the end of time. Um, And this will be inaugurated by the return of Christ. We've studied that passage a couple of weeks ago. I've got another slide for you here. And it shows these two events being described, the end of the age of the law and also the end of time. The first of those passages is Matthew chapter 24. We covered that last week. Again, I'll give a little bit of that to you today. Matthew 24 is where Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, And so it's the end of the first age that he's talking about there. Um, if you jump ahead uh, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is the first text that we, just, we uh, looked at in this whole bit, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where Paul talks about the return of Christ, which will bring to an end of the age of time, the end of human history. It's the end of that second age of human history. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so the question that I asked four weeks ago that we're hopefully going to be able to answer today is, which of these two events is Peter describing in 2 Peter chapter 3? Because Peter talks about just four verses. He talks about this day of great cataclysm, this day of great destruction. And so the question that we've been trying to answer is, which of these two events is Peter describing? Because Peter writes this letter, the second letter, in 64 or 65 A.D., just before he would be crucified upside down by the then Nero Caesar. And so he's writing right not after 70 AD. He's writing right up against 70 AD. And so the question is, was he talking about an event that's going to happen just six years away, five years away, or is he talking about an event that's going to happen thousands of years into the future at the return of Christ? 
Um, so that's what I'm, kind of where I'm going today, gives you a little bit of background of where we've been as well. Our text comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. These are those four verses where Peter describes uh, the destruction of the world. But I've also added one verse on the front end of that, and it comes from 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, and then the four verses. Here we go, verse 22. What the true proverb says has a point to them. The dog returned to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, before I get to any of those uh, four verses, I want to just real quickly just explain Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, what he's talking about there. He gives, this is actually from the Proverbs, it's a proverb, and he refers to this dog returning to its vomit. In other words, a dog, you know, can go out and get a really good meal, right, and, and enjoy his really good meal, but then because he's a dog, um, he has this bad habit. Um, and then he also refers to the sow there, how the sow, uh, after she gets all cleaned up, and she's just this beautiful, shiny pig, and you take her to the, the, the fair, and she gets her blue ribbon, well, then the next thing you know, when you take her back home, she goes and finds a mud hole and wallows in the mud hole. And so he's comparing, this is kind of how human nature works sometimes, you know, we get cleaned up, we do things that are right, we begin living right, but because of our sinful nature that's there within us, the, the, the lure is, the appeal is to go back to the way we used to live before we came to Christ. All right, now let's jump forward from there. We'll come back to that at, uh, later on. But Second Peter chapter 3, let's talk about these four verses. This is a um, list, uh, a description. I've got a description here for you in Second Peter um, of this day of great cataclysm. He says that when that day arrives, verse 10, it will be like a thief. In other words, it will come upon the people who experience it as a total surprise. He says that there will be a great roar in the skies of heaven. And so what these slides are doing is they're just picking out of these verses and creating the little uh, summary list for you. He says that, uh, verse 3, back in verse 3, that there will be scoffers or antagonists. Uh, Y'all say the word scoffers with me. Scoffers. So he's saying that in the last days, in these days that he's talking about, these antagonists of the church will arise and they will begin trying to lure people away from the Christian, the true Christian faith. He says twice in both verses 10 and 12 that the heavens or skies will be burned up and set on fire and that the earth, in Greek is the word gain there, will be dissolved. And then finally, Peter says, verse 13, that the material world, the heavens, the skies, the visible universe will be made new. He says that the earth or the dirt will also be new as well. Now, as we read through those verses, just kind of in a cursory reading of those, we may reflect back on some of the details and presume that Peter is talking about a complete reset of the material world. I mean, that seems to be what he's describing here. The earth's going to be dissolved. The skies are going to burn up. I mean, it sounds like an end-of-the-world description here to you and I if we just read that at face value. 
compare 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, where he's talking about this day great cataclysm, with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul is talking about the end of time, the return of Christ. Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14, that through Jesus, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Paul talking about the return of Christ. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, possibly a roar, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. So there's going to be this event that takes place in the sky, Paul says, when Jesus will appear in the sky and accompany with him will be the souls of all those who have died in Christ and gone on to heaven before us. And then he says in verse 17, he adds that we who are alive at the time when this happens, who are left, will be caught up ourselves together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So there's going to be this resurrection, this reconstitution of dead bodies, of reconstituted, and those bodies are going to rise up into the sky. This is what Paul's describing here. going to rise up into the sky, will we'll rejoin their souls, which are accompanying Jesus in the heaven. And this is what the Bible refers to as the resurrection of the dead. And then verse 17, the people who are still on the earth who are watching all this stuff happen are then themselves going to be caught up, those who are in Christ. So let's put all this on our chart um, and compare these two passages side by side. What's interesting is when you hold these two passages side by side, notice what is absent. So I put in color, I'm trying to do a little color coding here for you that just shows some of what's compared and then the stuff that's in white is what's not the same. Um, so notice what is absent in these. While both men describe a sky event, Paul's description does not seem to be a destructive sky event. There's no mention in Paul's writings here about the skies being dissolved or being burned up. There's no mention of fire in Paul's description. There's no disillusion of the material realm in Paul's description. And similarly, there is no mention by Peter of the return of Christ. So nowhere in 2 Peter chapter 3 does he say anything about the resurrection of the dead. Does he say anything about souls appearing in the sky? Does he say anything about Jesus appearing in the sky to reclaim uh, those who are dead in Christ? Peter only talks about, Peter only mentions, Peter it seems to be only concerned with the destructive judgment notes of this event. Now there are some similarities. We mentioned about both, both men talking about stuff happening in the sky or in Peter's words in the heavens. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul's still on the same subject of the return of Christ. Paul uses the language of a thief. He describes a surprise element of the return of Christ. He says, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now go back to our slides here. We're comparing 2 Peter 3 and 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> While there are some differences, there are also some similarities. And so just being objective, being honest about that, we have to see those similarities as well. Now let's do the same thing with Matthew 24, because Matthew 24, remember, talks about the end of the first age. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, as I shared with you all last week, Jesus is describing that, and he says that this, this event is going to take place, I don't have the verse for you, but in Matthew 24 and verse 34, it will happen in this generation. In other words, within the next 40 years, a generation is 40 years for the Jewish people. And so he's saying that events that I'm describing in Matthew 24 will happen in the next 40 years. Specifically, I can't tell you the day and the hour. But when it comes to when this event's going to happen in general, it's going to happen in the next 40 years. That's the time frame that Jesus gives us. Jesus says in verse 5, he's describing this event itself, Matthew 24, verse 5, that there will be a major uptick 
and false prophets, people claiming to be the Messiah. He says in verse 6 that there will be wars and rumors of wars. He mentions earthquakes in verse 7. He says in verse 14 that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole Greek-speaking part of the world. The word there is the word oikumen. And then in verse 29, Jesus describes a sky event. He says, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. Now, again, at face value, when we read Jesus' words, it sounds like the end of the world. I mean, the sky is like folding and the sun's going dark and the moon's going dark and all this stuff. However, as good students of the Bible, we know that to correctly handle the word of truth, that we should not start with the question, well, what do I think he's talking about? But rather, we should ask the question, what did the original audience hear? What, what did the original writer intend for this to mean? Not what, is, what do I think it means, but what did they think it meant? And then work toward your life and mine. And the original audience would have immediately recognized Jesus' words as an example of apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic language. They would not have understood this literally. They would have understood this as Jesus saying, look, a great day of judgment is coming. That's what they would have heard. That's what Jesus is describing, this great day of judgment. Because after the stars fall and the sky is darkened, if you keep reading in this chapter, people are still alive and walking around on the earth. I mean, how is anybody alive and walking around on the earth after the sun's gone, after the moon's gone, after the stars have all fallen out of the sky? So, friends, for this, this is apocalyptic language that Jesus is using here. It is not to be taken literally. Rather, it, to take it literally, please hear me now, because I'm a literal Bible guy. To take this literally, this passage of Scripture, means that we understand this in a metaphorical sense. It is apocalyptic language and apocalyptic literature. It is not descriptive, but rather it is metaphorical. Again, trying to indicate the coming judgment of God. And the following verse, verse 30, confirms all of this. Verse 30, Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the gain, the earth, will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now that statement of Jesus returning on the clouds, again, that sounds a lot like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Perhaps. (laughs) However, Again, as students of the Bible, good students of the Bible, we know that whenever God describes himself coming on the clouds, that these are not white puffy clouds. When God says, I'm coming on the clouds, these are ominous clouds. These are thunder uh, boomers. These are lightning bolts coming out of them kind of clouds. God is coming on the clouds and is a reference to the coming judgment of God. Um, Again, this is an, an example of apocalyptic imagery the judgment of God on its way. For example, in the Old Testament, we see this imagery unfold. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. There he is. He's coming on a cloud. And comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So when God comes on the clouds, people's knees are buckling. How about Joel chapter 2 and verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, here comes the cloud reference, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, this is apocalyptic imagery that that Joel is presenting here, that Isaiah is presenting here, that Jesus is drawing from in that same theme. 
It is not intended to be understood literally, but rather it is to signal or to communicate the coming judgment of God. Jesus' cloud coming in Matthew 24 is not a descriptive event. Rather, it is the imagery of the coming judgment of God, and that's exactly what happened. The Jewish people were punished. The Jewish people received in themselves the punishment for rejecting their Messiah. Jesus was angry. God was angry. And for 40 years, a generation, they had chance after chance after chance to turn this thing around and to recognize Jesus for who he was, but they reject, continued to reject him. Verse 31, back to our slides here, verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. So we have a trumpet that's involved at this event. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. That sounds somewhat familiar to what Peter describes as the new heavens and a new earth. Jesus uses a thief reference in verse 43 to describe the surprise nature of this coming judgment. Verse 43 says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. Um, now, I've got a slide for you here, and this slide compares Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Y'all doing okay? All right, I know I'm throwing a bunch at you here this morning. Just hang in there with me. It's all going to come full circle here shortly. Um, Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4. So these two events, one's describing the end of the age of the law, early on, 70 AD. The second one's describing the end of time, the return of Christ, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. And so comparing these two, um, what we get are points of similarity between these two passages, and they include a thief reference. They include Jesus appearing in the sky or the cloud judgment and the presence of the trumpet blast. Um, now, let's do the same thing again with Matthew chapter 24 and 2 Peter chapter 3. Because, again, we're still trying to figure out, well, which of these events is Peter talking about here? Um, <clears throat> both of these events talk about Matthew 24 and 2 Peter 3. Both these events talk about false prophets who will mislead. Peter calls them scoffers. Jesus calls them false prophets or Messiah impersonators. Both of these passages talk about the surprise nature of this event using the thief reference. Both passages talk about heaven and earth passing away. That's the heavy blue that you can't see out there. Eh, sorry about that. I just ran out of colors when I was putting this together. Um, both describe a disillusion of the material sky, the sun and the moon going dark, Peter, the heavens being set on fire. So here is the big question. After four weeks of studying Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 2 Peter chapter 3, big question is, which event do you think Peter's describing. We'll go back to our diagram that we had there at the beginning. Which is it? Y'all know, right? Got it all figured out? Well, uh, actually, Gordon, now that you ask, I don't feel quite as confident as I was hoping I would be in answering that question, which of these two events Peter is describing. Um, it could go either way. Now, there are great men and women of God who think that 2 Peter chapter 3 is describing 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the return of Christ at the end of time, a day of global cataclysm. There are also great men and women of God who think that 2 Peter chapter 3 is describing a local day of destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and they hear this language of uh, apocalyptic literature in Peter, and so they don't take him quite as literally as what's just right there on the page, and so they would say, you know what, I think Peter's describing this earlier event. Um, Here's where I'm going to leave you with it. Whichever way you see, 
2 Peter chapter 3. Whichever of these two events you think that he's referring to, your conclusion, if incorrect, will not result in you losing your salvation. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Friends, how we view 2 Peter chapter 3 and what conclusion we make about what event we think Peter is describing is not a salvation issue. If we lean towards 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about 1 Thessalonians 4 and the return of Christ, I mean, that's great. When you get, and you're wrong, when you get to the gates of heaven, heaven's going to welcome you in. And if you get to, if you think, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm really sure, I'm, I'm feeling really confident here that 2 Peter chapter 3 is talking about Matthew 24 and this destruction of Jerusalem, and you're wrong, and, and, and the Lord shows up in the sky and you're on your way, right? Heaven's going to welcome you in to its gates. How we view this passage, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3, chapter 3, verses 13 through 10 through 13, is not a salvation issue. You say, well, then what difference does any of this make, right? I mean, <laughs> what have we been doing for the last three weeks, now four weeks, doing all this? What difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a really great question. Let me see if I can answer that. First of all, I think it's a lot of fun to study this stuff. So, I'm, again, I'm just a Bible nerd. Perhaps it's not quite as intriguing for you as it is for me, but I enjoy my hours down in the office during the week. And it is, it is fun to kind of look into these stuff and try to think about what events are we talking about. We become more learned about the Scriptures. We become more learned about um, biblical history. Secondly, we should be cautious, because it's not absolutely clear, we should be cautious about becoming too dogmatic about which view we're going to take and about whether or not we think that I'm in the right camp and you're in the wrong camp and making something that's not a salvation issue, uh, an issue for division within the body of Christ. So we just need to be careful and cautious about that. Um, I got a slide for you here. Um, This is a fellow by the name of Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer, where's Albert? Yeah, He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, he was a German Right? He had that look of uh, Einstein, doesn't he? Right? They like the mustaches back. They've kind of come back. It's, it's a, things come full circle, right? Um, anyhow, he was a professor of theology. He was also a, um, a brilliant organist, and he was a Lutheran minister, a Lutheran minister. Schweitzer achieved notoriety as a theologian when he published his watershed book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. Um, yeah, 1906. So this thing was released in 1906. Originally in German, and then 1910, it was released in English. And it became uh, uh, quite a, it made quite a stir um, in the theological circles. Um, This book objectively looked at passages like Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Peter chapter 3 and said, hey, look, Jesus and his disciples all thought that the return of Christ and the end of the world was imminent. So when he sat down with Matthew 24, Schweitzer thought Jesus was talking about the return of Christ and the end of the world. And Jesus said, 40 years, it's going to happen. And so Schweitzer, with that conclusion in mind, began to ask questions of, well, I mean, if Jesus and the New Testament writers and the testimony of the disciples and of what the Bible has to say, and supposedly the Bible is the inspired word of God, then if they were wrong, then maybe... The Bible's not as reliable as I thought it was. And maybe the witness of the disciples is not as reliable as I thought it was. And maybe Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. Because if he said this stuff was going to happen within 40 years and it didn't happen, the return of Christ, then, I mean, can I trust any of this stuff? 
And so this led authors like Schweitzer to begin questioning uh, the veracity of Jesus. Was Jesus really God in the flesh? Um, so Schweitzer threw a wrench into the reliability of the scriptural account, the reliability of the disciples' testimony, and the reliability of Jesus himself. And in doing this, in this book, he led a lot of Christians astray. He, he, he just threw a wedge in there and, and facilitated a question, facilitated doubt. Doubt's not, doubt, doubt won't send you to hell. God's okay with us asking questions. Let's be clear about that. But when we ask those questions and then walk away from God because we either don't get an answer that's satisfactory or we just don't get the answers that we want, then, you know, a wedge has been driven. Again, this guy was a Lutheran minister, a professor of theology. And he lived and moved in Christian circles, and yet here he is destroying the work of God, sowing seeds of doubt because he thought he knew something. What's interesting is when you come to the second letter of Peter, we discover that the Albert Schweitzers of the world existed even in the first century. Take a look, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. People that rise up from your own ranks that will teach falsely. People who will bring in destructive heresies even denying the, the master who bought them, indicating that these are people who like, went into the waters of baptism. These are people who had joined the church. These were even ordained ministers of the gospel. So Peter is saying that within the first century church, again, remember he writes this in 64, 65 AD, just prior to his crucifixion, just prior to his martyrdom. He says that within the first century church, there will rise up, there will spring up false teachers from within, from amongst the people. And they will become purveyors of destructive heresies, he says. Peter goes on to tell us one of their pitches or one of their enticements or one of their wedges that they try to drive is this. He says, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, where is the Lord Jesus? He said he was going to be here within 40 years. He said that this great day of cataclysm was coming and that not one stone was going to be left upon another of this temple. Well, it's still standing, isn't it? Where is he? Now, we know because of the benefit of hindsight that the Lord Jesus did bring judgment upon the Jewish people who had rejected him. We know that every word that Jesus spoke in Matthew 24 was fulfilled. And we also know that the Albert Schweitzers uh, of that century were horribly wrong because he made the mistake of conflating Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he saw these two passages as describing the same end-of-time event. You say, well, okay, that answers the question of Albert Schweitzer, and it answers the question of the first century scoffers or false teachers, but again, what has that got to do with me? Let me introduce you to one more person. This is a guy by the name of Joshua Harris. Um, Josh Harris, some of you may recognize the name, was the senior pastor of a large and thriving evangelical church in Maryland. He had a beautiful family, had a wife. I think he had three children. Pastor Harris came into prominence when he published a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye back in, I believe it was 1996, 97. And it sold well over a million copies. And it was, it was a book about biblical purity before marriage. Um, and he really became a conference, sought-after conference speaker, all that sort of stuff that goes along with that. In 2019, Pastor Harris announced 
that he was divorcing his wife, abandoning his children, and that he was leaving the Christian faith. Josh Harris has, uh, today, you can find Josh Harris marching in gay pride parades and living a life of unbridled iniquity. Josh Harris has also become a leading voice in what's called the deconstructing faith movement. Harris encourages young men and young women not only to question the Christian faith, but to leave it altogether. Josh Harris, and there are many others like him, is a false teacher, a modern-day scoffer who has risen up within the ranks of the church and who is attempting to lure followers of Jesus Christ to join him in his rebellion against God. Now, Josh Harris is not arguing where is the promise of his coming. That's not the wedge that, or the, his argument that he's making. He's got modern-day arguments adapted to the questions that are being raised by, about Christianity today. However, the result is the same. And Peter describes the result. He says, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Friends, there is nothing new under the sun. False teachers have been in the church they have continued through the centuries, and they're even in the church amongst us today. They've been antagonizing the faithful and trying to lure the faithful away. This is nothing new. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, beware of them. Here's where I want to leave this this morning. When questions arise about the veracity of Christianity, and those questions will come, and again, it's not it's not wrong for us to ask those questions or to have doubts or to have some skeptical thoughts. Those questions will arise about the reliability of the Bible, about the testimony of the disciples, even the claims of Jesus himself. Friends, we need to be savvy enough, wary enough, wise enough, discerning enough to recognize this for what it is. It is just a bunch of people who want to, like a dog returning to its vomit, of the sinful life that they lived before, trying to lure other people to join them in their iniquity. They are miserable, and misery loves company, doesn't it? They are people who are desperately trying to make themselves feel better about what it is that they're doing by getting other people to join them. And the thinking is, the rationale is, if enough of us are doing this, then it must be okay. It must be fine. God he must, it's, he got to be all right with this. Friends, Satan knows that one of the best, most effective ways, one of the most convincing ways to lure Christians away is by using the voices of folks who were at one time, at least visibly, part of the family of God. I got one more slide for you here. Here's our buddy. The question for us is, Will we, be, will we go willingly to our cross like Peter did? Will this here be the testimony of our life? Or will we join the likes of the Josh Harris's of the world like a dog returning to its vomit? The choice is yours. What will be the testimony of your life? Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for talking to us today from your word. We thank you for the witness of the life of this great man of God, Peter.
The world is full of enticements. The world makes clever arguments. Lord, may we be discerning enough to say, you know what? I'm going to take my lot with the Lord Jesus and with the faithful. God, we pray as we come around this table and are reminded of what you did so that we could have freedom from sin, so that we could have life eternal. Lord, may we with grateful hearts be willing to say, yes, Jesus, I choose you all day, every day against the enticements and the cleverly crafted questions and wedges of the enemies of the cross. Lord, you are my God. You are my Savior. It is to you that I commit my life. Lord, in these moments of communion, may we fresh and new communicate our love for you and our commitment for you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.